0: Great. Thanks for being here today. I I just love it. I love it when you lead. Hey, uh, good morning. morning. Happy Father's Day to you. Uh, My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and if you're uh, with us online, we're so glad you're here. Welcome to to Bethel Bible Church. If you've got your Bibles, go to Psalm chapter 8. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 8, and... um, I'll, be, I'll begin this way. There, there's a, um, an author named Mark Sayers, S A Y E R S. And he is a sociologist who uh, writes about sociology, writes about theology. Um, Australian guy, I think he's Australian, but he, um, he's got several books. In, in one of his books called The Vertical Self, how biblical faith can help us discover who we are in an age of self-obsession. Listen to what he says. He says, welcome to the 21st century where we can now purchase and change personalities the way we can clothes depending on our mood or circumstance. Welcome to the world in which we're told we can be anyone we want to be. Where identity is no longer based in a sense of self, but rather in an imaginary, uh, in the imagery that we choose at any particular moment. He goes on, he says this, try this experiment. In three or four sentences, describe what makes someone cool, sexy, glamorous, and then he says, how'd you do? It's a lot harder than you think, yet many people around the globe use these words to create identities for themselves. Think of the millions, trillions of dollars spent every year on products and clothes and experiences, even property, so that people can convince themselves and others that these adjectives describe them and that they therefore are valuable. They've become the new social virtues, he says. But then he goes on, he says, Listen, but you just can't describe yourself as cool. Others must label you cool. In that way, our identities are dependent upon what others think. However, this means we do not think of others as being created in the image of God. We turn them into mirrors with one purpose, and that purpose is to tell us who we are. We treat others as our audience he says, we've gotten to this point because we've lost a sense of self and all we do now is act and we've lost our identities and we don't know how to get them back. 20 years ago, I was in seminary and I read a book that was written in 1998. So, this book um, by Neil Gabler is 22 years old before social media. Listen to what his analysis is. He says it this way. The book's called Life the Movie, all right? Um, And so what he says about cinema, I think he would probably say today about social media. He says this, cinema has replaced religion as the primary way in which we understand our lives. The medium of film has profoundly changed how we view ourselves and our identities. Here's the way we view our lives. Our lives, he says, are personal life movies, billions of them, and, we're, uh, and they star ordinary people. We're playing in everyday existence on the street and at the office or the factory or the restaurant or the shopping mall, uh, et cetera, it, and this has become the age of the performing self who is always, as they say in show business, on. We no longer find a sense of self through the art of living. Instead, we find a sense of self through performance. We no longer live. We act. We have all become actors in the movies of our life. It's insightful analysis, isn't it? We don't know who we are. We're desperate to know. We see a world... throwing themselves out in in picture and uh, uh, little video clips and begging the world to approve of them, of us. You know, it's interesting. The Bible, 2,500, 3,000 years ago, asks the same question, who are we? Who who am I? How am I to think about myself? And the Bible does it in Psalm chapter 8. Actually, the Bible does it in more places, but Psalm chapter 8 is what we're going to look at this morning. And, and here's sort of the thesis I'm operating off of. Here's what Psalm chapter 8 is going to say, that, that to find out who we are, to, to come to the, to the kind of core of our identity, we don't, we don't find that by looking in the mirror or looking to culture or looking to social media or to our accomplishments or to our feelings, We find out who we are and why we're here, not by looking at ourselves, but by looking away from ourselves. And I'll show you how the psalmist does this. It's this contrast of the worship of ourselves with the right worship of God. And Psalm... Chapter 8, I'll give you the punchline. It's going to tell you about yourself. You are crowned with glory. That's what it's going to argue. So, you might think about it this way. Let's think about it this way. Psalm uh, chapter 8, if if Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of creation, Psalm chapter 8 sings the song. Of creation. Look look at how it begins. Chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, skip to the end of Psalm 8 and look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all the earth. The the heart of the psalm, the the center of the psalm comes in chapter, or in verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4. The center of the psalm asks the question, what is man? But I want you to see that it begins with a declaration of the majesty and glory of God and ends with a declaration of the majesty and glory of God. Before answering, before putting at the very center this question, what is man? The psalmist begins and he ends both with declaring the majesty of God. You're, you, you are, your name is majestic. How majestic is your name in all the earth? And you have set your glory above the heavens. To speak about God as being majestic, it's to speak about his power, his excellence, it's his rule over all the earth. To to speak about his glory, this is to talk about his His splendor, unstained, untarnished brilliance. Now, here's what the psalmist is going to do. The question may be, okay, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And you've set your glory above the heavens. God, how have you made your name majestic in all the earth? God, how have you set your glory above the heavens? How have you done that? And you might think the answer is, well, he's done it by a show of of strength, of force, of, of brilliant blinding beauty. This is what you think when you think of things that are majestic and glorious. Notice how David, who the postscript tells you it's, it's David that's writing this, and he's writing it for the choir masters so that the choir will sing this song. And he's going to argue this is how God makes his name majestic in all the earth, in his glory above the heavens. Look at what he says in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established your strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Your name is majestic in all the earth, and your glory is above the heavens. How does God do that? He can take the sound of a crying baby and in his hands use that to defeat his foes. In other words, God takes the babbling of babies and he erects a tower of strength. We know, we know from the Bible, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God takes, he uses weak things to confound the mighty. He doesn't need powerful people. He doesn't need eloquent speakers to silence his adversaries. The simple cry for help will be heard by God and will overcome the world. You've seen, you know, if you've been around the birth of a child, you know it's awe-inspiring. Miracle is what is used so often. One writer said, the miracle of life silences a million books as you see the majesty and glory of God. Charles Spurgeon. It's Father's Day. You gotta have a little Spurgeon on Father's Day, okay? Or I do anyway. I'm gonna indulge myself. Listen to how he says it. I love Spurgeon. He goes, Aha, oh adversary! To be overcome by behemoth or leviathan might make thee angry, but to be smitten out of infants' mouths, causes thee to bite the dust in utter dishonor. Thou art sore broken now that out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou art put to shame. Isn't that great? Could have done it with anything. Could have defeated his foes anyway. And he decided to let the cry of a baby be the weapon that he wielded. Look at verse 3. Not only is your strength and your majesty and your glory shown in the cry of a baby, verse 3, and then you've got to see it. David, you know, is maybe a shepherd boy here, and he's sitting on the side of the hill, and it's nighttime, and he's staring up into the night sky. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. You ever looked at the night sky and felt overwhelmed? David knew what that was like, to look up into the vastness and the wonder of a night sky. You know, with a naked eye, you can see about 5,000 stars on a clear night. If you take a four-inch telescope and you look through it on a clear night sky, you can see about two million stars. With a 200-inch telescope, mirror from an observatory. They've got one right outside of Wichita, Kansas, where we used to live. We went and got to look through it one night. What they say is that if you look through one of those, you can see more than a billion stars. Give you some perspective. The, the universe is so big, if you were to travel at the speed of light, it would take 40 billion years. What that means… It doesn't matter how old you think the earth is. What that means, that there are stars we have yet to see that were established as, at creation because their light has yet to reach us. That's how big the universe is. David's sitting there on the side of the hill. When I look up, I am absolutely Overwhelmed. When I see it, and it is here, it is is in that contemplation, it is in the the vastness and the beauty and the glory of God that then David asks, verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? That, that you remember him. To, to be mindful of someone is to know their name, to remember their name. He's saying, he's saying, there's this vastness. The universe is huge. It's more than I can take in, both in scope and in beauty. Who, 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 who am I that you would even know my name? And the Son of Man, he says, that you care for him. The old translations have visit him. That, that's how it's translated every other place in the ESV. It's this idea of, 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 of personal connection, this intimacy uh, 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 implied here, that this intimate connection of God is as overwhelming as God's majesty is to David. The fact that God would remember his name, would know his name, is more overwhelming. Look at verse 5. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, the word heavenly beings there, maybe you have angels. It's actually from the word Elohim. Elohim, it means God. think what David is saying is, "You you made man, you made me a little lower than God. Now, now, Humans are less than God, to be sure. But the point is, they're closer to God than anything else in all of the created order. David doesn't say, you, you made us so much higher than the animals. No, you made us lower, a little lower than Elohim beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You see, Genesis 127 says human beings are made in the image of God. That means more than any other creature, humans reflect and represent God. God crowned humanity as image bearer with his glory. You know what glory means? It means the weight of God's beauty and perfection and righteousness. We've been crowned with it. C.S. Lewis talks about in uh, 1953 when, when Queen Elizabeth II is uh, crowned her coronation, and she's a girl. And he talks about that he didn't want to go, the weather was bad, and he was in a foul mood and didn't like crowds and whatever, but, but, he, but he reflected upon the coronation afterwards, and he Writes this in his letters to a friend. And, and what he says is, he says, You know, people went there and they went there for the fairy tale feeling. He says, What happens though, they came away, there was no fairy tale feeling that went with that. What they witnessed was a little girl who had this massive, weighty crown placed upon her head, and the feeling wasn't a fairy tale, he said. He said their feelings were awe and pity and mystery. The pressings of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of a symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so... Inadequate. Says you miss the whole point of what it means that we're crowned with glory. If you don't understand that the splendor of it is tragic splendor, look at why he crowned us with glory. Verse six: You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Not only do human beings have an important status in creation, we have a critical function in creation. Mankind, mankind, men, men and women, we were appointed as as vassals prime ministers over creation to maintain order to shine light to re, to reflect God's glory to rule on his behalf and this is where the tension hits us right all that we were created to be and yet we look around and we realize we have made a mess of things. I don't even have to illustrate that today, do I? It's a mess. Because of the presence of sin, mankind is not ruled over God's creation as he intended. We haven't ruled together as God's people as the image bearers of God over his creation as he intended. Creation's not in submission. It's in chaos. Whatever it is that God's intention for man was, here's what we know. We have failed. What was intended in Genesis chapter 1 is lost in Genesis 3. David knows this. In fact, it's pointing us forward. What was lost in Genesis, what was, what was intended in Genesis 1, what we were created for, we lost it in Genesis 3. We find when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament authors draw back on Psalm chapter 8 and say, but Jesus has restored it. See, that's why the psalmist, he he begins by praising God. He's searching for the answer. Who am I? Why am I here? And the place he goes first is to look to God. The more majestic that God is, the more glorious, the more splendid he is, his his power, his excellence, his, his rule, the more you understand who he is, the more you understand your own glory and honor and how mindful he is of you you don't look to your accomplishments you don't look to what you've accumulated you don't look to your natural abilities you don't look to your to your beauty for your identity you you look to your creator in coming to God, saturating your heart, your, your mind with his majesty, you find out who you are, what you're like. And so the writer of Hebrews is working this out. Go, go to Hebrews chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, we'll look at it really quickly, and we'll, and we'll get out of here and we'll go watch NASCAR, or whatever you're going to do. The writer of Hebrews, you know, he starts by saying, you know, he's writing to these Jewish believers that that are in thread of kind of walking away from all this. And he's like, hey, listen, I don't know who you thought Jesus was, but I'm telling you, he's better than everything. He's better than every prophet that came before him. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the mountain. He's better than the temple. He's better than the sacrifices. He's everything. And in 2, verse 5, he's the founder of our salvation. And then he goes into 6, and he says, it's been testified somewhere. I have every reason, confidence to believe the writer of Hebrews knew exactly where it was found, and so did his readers. Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That takes us right into the first line of verse 8. Now, get this. This is what he does. He's pulling Psalm 8, and he's saying this, verse 8. Now, I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, meaning mankind. won't see it. Sin has made a mess of everything. We aren't who we were created to be. We're not living out the identity of who we are. But notice what he says in verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. He was made a little lower than the angels. You want to see who you are, who you're supposed to be? Look at Jesus. He was made. We were made in the image of God. Jesus came and took on our image, He took on our likeness. He became humanity. He became what we were always supposed to be. He came down, He became less, He became us. And He lived a perfect life, and then He died a perfect death, so that if you receive Him, you you receive the crown that you were meant to wear in Him. He's crowned with glory and honor. He's perfect humanity. You receive Him as Savior. You receive His perfect humanity in Him. To discover who you really are, you've got to find the blueprint you were designed to be in the person of Christ. He's the new Adam, the new first human. He's the image in which humanity is made to become ourselves. We must first become more like Christ. Now, that's not all. It's amazing what the writer of Hebrews says next. Look in verse 11 and 12. For he who sanctifies... For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That ought to blow your mind. I'll claim you as my own. Jesus says, I will sing praises over you. I am everything you were meant to be. And I offer it to you freely. So oh, we live in such an individualistic society. You know, we we measure ourselves. We put our best foots forward. We, you know, we, we 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 lead with our with our resume of of accomplishments and and uh, uh, all the ways to try to promote ourselves. You know, I went here. I I did this. I it. What we don't usually talk about, and and, and yet it's. The history of the world, you know, the history would do this. Even other civilizations around the world today, it's not so much what they did, what they've accomplished, it's it's really where they're from. Who are their people? It's it's their answer. I'm, I'm Joe's kid. That was the most important things about them. We were watching this movie the other day, it's an old movie, we re-watched it, Amistad. It's a great movie, if you haven't seen it, see, you know, read. You haven't seen it in a while, see it again, 1800s, slave ship, lands of Connecticut, they enslave all the, the folks, they end up going all the way to the Supreme Court, and John Quincy Adams, played by Anthony Hopkins, is gonna argue this case before the Supreme Court for the freedom of these slaves. And Adams is telling Cinque, who's the, the main character of the story, he says, listen, I'm telling you, I'm preparing you. He's talking about going to the Supreme Court. I suppose I'm explaining to you that the test ahead of us is an exceptionally difficult one. And Cinque looks at him and says, we won't be going there alone. And Adams says, Alone? Oh, oh, indeed not. No, no, we have, we have right at our side. We have righteousness at our side. And, oh, we have Mr. Baldwin over here at our side. And Cinque says, no, I mean my ancestors. I will call into the past far back to the beginning of time and beg them to come and to help me at the judgment. I will reach back and draw them into me, and they must come. For at this moment, I am the whole reason they have existed at all. That's how people thought of themselves, which is why Roman emperors, all of them, doctored their genealogies, they took all the bad so-and-sos out of it, you know? In fact, this is way... It's the way every the normal man would do, it. so who who you know where are you from who's your people? Well, you'd tell them all the good people you'd conveniently forget all the bad people, where you came from, who you could identify with this this was part of your identity you, you never you never put the bad people, the people you weren't proud of in your identity in your genealogy, which is I just need two minutes you just blows my mind. In Matthew, beginning of Matthew's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus, there's five women there. And you know what's crazy? One, you'd never put a woman, sorry ladies, but you wouldn't. You you wouldn't have put women in your genealogy, and certainly not these women. one who was guilty of incest, one who was a prostitute, one who um, was an, uh, an, an unwed mother, a, an adulteress. By moral standards, there people you would have been ashamed of. But you know what? Jesus shows up and proudly says, that's who I identify with, that's who I'm from. This is the genealogy of the king of the universe and it means it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you've done and it doesn't matter whether you've lived inside the gates of hell. You can be part of his family. The death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, union with him, coming into union with him. The Bible uses words like being adopted. You become part of the family. You become someone. You become someone he claims as my brother and my sister, and then sings praise over you. And he's not ashamed of you at all. You are his prize. Let me tell you something, knowing that that is the core of your identity is 10 million times greater than going viral on social media. It doesn't matter what anyone's ever said about you, what your parents say. What their verdict is, it doesn't matter what your siblings say. It doesn't matter what your peers say. It doesn't matter what the world says. You're not ruled by that. It matters what God says about you. It matters that your brother, Jesus, he claims you. I'll end this way, and I had a seminary professor named Robert Pine, Bob. He was a great professor. He's a great professor. The class I took from him was anthropology. I think it was actually anthropology or humanity. Uh, wait a minute. Humanity and sin, I think is what it was. Um, Anthropology and homardiology are the nerdy words. He actually wrote the book, the textbook, and it's used all over. But Towards the end of the textbook, he he writes this after he's been defending the dignity of man and much of what Psalm 8 has to say. He ends this way, he says, I should probably add that my feelings on this issue are colored not only by my theology, but also by my experience. Our oldest son, Stephen, had open heart surgery when he was just eight months old. Unfortunately, some countries, doctors, even some parents would not have allowed him To have that operation even though it was necessary to save his life. Steve has Down syndrome. Too many people think that lives like his are not worth saving. My temptation as a proud dad has always been to talk about the things Steve enjoys doing, how quickly he learned to read how sincerely he loves the Lord to try to convince others that this very happy life was worth saving. This says, on the other hand, my job as a theologian is simply to say his life has worth, was worth saving because he has inherent dignity as a human being in the image of God. And the same is true of little boys who will never learn to read and those whose lives don't look happy at all. The treatment of the handicapped, the marginal, raises other implications that are important in the approach that we are taking here toward the image of God. The image of God consists simply, if the image of God consists simply of our rational, emotional, volitional capacities, then certain severely handicapped persons evidently lack God's image and may be judged less than human. People who lose those capacities, who lose something of their humanity, perhaps forfeiting inherent human rights. By contrast, I have argued that even our bodies have been formed in God's image as they have been made to reflect His glory. Since all persons still have the potential To be fully conformed to Christ's likeness and to act as vice regents over creation, either in this life or the next. All human life is valuable. Do you know that about yourself? Do you know that about those that are different? Than you. Images of God we are. If you'll bow with me, let's pray. Father, I pray you would do what only you can do. Help us to glimpse your majesty in all the earth, your glory above the heavens. wondering who we are and what we're to do, Father, would you draw our eyes to you? Father, would you help us to see your son, Jesus? Father, would we, would we find our place, our value, our worth in him? The one who is not ashamed to call us brother or sister. The one who sings over us with praise. Father, draw us to the saving, sanctifying knowledge of who Jesus is. And in that, we would find who we are. We pray this the only way we can, in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit.